0: Welcome back, I'm Ginger Locke, and I'm here again with Joe Powell, who's the EMS coordinator for Rialto Fire Department, and Kevin Joles, the division chief of EMS for Lawrence Douglas County Fire and Medical. In episode one, we discussed the journey they've been on. They've been trying to increase survival from cardiac arrest, and what they've learned is that there are some key ingredients to making that happen, and we'll hear more about those ingredients in this episode. In episode one, we learned about one tool, the autopulse. In this episode, we'll hear about some more tools. But before we dig into those, I wanted to go back to the beginning and learn about how and really why this journey began. Joe, how did you and your department decide to make saving lives from sudden cardiac arrest your important journey?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ginger. Um, yeah, we had to look at, you know, where the low hanging fruit was and where the most lives we could save. And that was definitely uh, in cardiac arrest versus suppression, where we spend a lot of money, but we don't have a lot of lives to be saved. And so we looked at it that way. In in Rialto, uh, my chief says we have to have big, hairy, audacious goals. And, you know, part of our mission, vision and values is to bring value to the community measured in lives saved and the quality of lives saved. And so it's the number of lives that we save and the quality of lives. Right. So we can't just bring people back. Right. We have to bring them back uh, and have them neurologically intact to some extent. So that's where we, that's where we've got to go. It's the quality of lives and the number of lives saved. But when you look at where the low hanging fruit here is in a, in a fire department that has, you know, that with a relatively large budget, not that we're not a broke fire department, but with a lot of money put towards suppression, you've got to say, where are the, where is the life threat? And the life threat, unfortunately, is not in suppression. Right. a couple lives a year in suppression that we can save if we if we do our job right there but there is hundreds of lives a year that we can save in in cardiac arrest right and this advanced cardiac resuscitation program and so that's kind of the low-hanging fruit for us we had to look at it and say where are we going to save the most lives and how are we going to create the most quality in those lives and so we looked at where we were losing the most folks and it was right in cardiac arrest and we said we got to do something about this and we went back looked at our data looked at what what our ROS percentage was, what our neurologic attack survival percentage was, and said, we've got to do
0: better. I'm anxious to dig into another tool. When I learned about apneic oxygenation, when I learned that that was in the bundle of care, um, I was thrilled because I first heard about this in a podcast years ago. And I was kind of wondered if that concept just lived in the podcast. And it sounds like you have and your team have brought it to the field. What can you tell me about it? How Can you explain how it fits into the toolkit for advanced care resuscitation?
2: Sure. So when when we started this whole uh, change of culture in cardiac arrest care, uh, this was just another opportunity for us to provide care to the patient without really having to physically do something once we've added the nasal cannula to the patient. So when we add that nasal cannula to the patient, we put it in their nose like a normal nasal cannula would go and we uh, turn on high flow O2 at about 15 liters per minute. And that is allowing for that patient to receive oxygenation in a passive way while we're doing continuous uninterrupted CPR. And so while we're preparing other things such as medications, uh, the electricity that we may deliver if the, the rhythm is shockable, um, it's allowing for every compression to act like a mini ventilation, and mm-hmm. and the, the positive and negative pressures within the chest. Um, it is it's it's happening without us having to hold a bag valve mask or intubate or use a supraglottic airway early on in the cardiac arrest. As we've progressed over time, um, some of the entities that are are doing what we're doing continue to do apneic oxygenation. It's a, a tool that is great um, for agencies that don't have a lot of personnel early on in the cardiac arrest, some rural departments or departments that may have um, an ambulance that goes first and then waits for the, um, the triage and then they ask for more people to come. And it's, it's helpful so that that patient is being able to be ventilated in a passive way um, while the minimal crew or other crew members are able to do other parts of the cardiac arrest. And as we have progressed in our protocol, we have been able to, uh, we've, sometimes we'll use apneic oxygenation, and sometimes if we've got the crew on scene, then we'll insert a supraglottic airway earlier, which is obviously delivering ventilations early on in the cardiac arrest. If we are unable to, to insert a supraglottic airway or an orotracheal um, intubation, then we will uh, continue with the apneic oxygenation.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Joe, I wanted to ask about another tool, the rescue pod. It's in the toolkit and it's, a, it's actually the tool I know the least about. I know it's non-invasive and that it regulates intrathoracic pressure. What can you teach us about it and how does it fit into the toolkit of survival from cardiac arrest?
1: Yeah, Ginger, the, uh, the rescue pod or the impedance threshold device was the, actually the second tool that, uh, that we implemented here at Rialto. Our CQI coordinator, uh, Kevin Dearden, and our chief Grayson uh, at the time brought in the rescue pod and said, hey, look at this. We think this might have some benefit. And if you haven't heard of the rescue pod, the rescue pod is just simply a device that goes on the end of the endotracheal tube or whatever uh, tube that you're using. And it helps create a negative inner thoracic pressure in the chest. And so why do we want a negative inner thoracic pressure in the chest? This makes no sense, right? You don't, you don't want a negative pressure there, right? You're trying to do compressions and you're trying to build pressure. But the bottom line is that we have a problem. So remember that ICP and cardiac arrest is your enemy. ICP is an enemy. Every time you do a compression, you're spiking ICP and ICP goes through the roof. You're frying a couple million cells every time you do a compression. So we have to fix that. How do we fix that? Well, when you look at uh, compressions and you look at interthoracic pressure and intracranial pressure, we know that if you create a negative interthoracic pressure in the chest, it drains more blood out of the brain. And remember, this is a blood in, blood out process. So paramedics tend to, and even and doctors and nurses tend to think about getting blood someplace. But to get blood someplace in a closed system, you've got to get blood out of that place. You have to get hypoxic acidotic blood out of the brain and decrease ICP to get good, fresh, oxygenated, proper pH blood back into the brain. So creating a negative neurothoracic pressure here actually draws blood out of the brain, decreases ICP, increases blood flow back to the heart and increases cerebral perfusion back to the brain. So that's how we do that. We put, put a rescue pod on uh, the end of the endotracheal tube. For us, when we put the rescue pod on, combined with continuous compressions, we went from 23% ROSC to 40% ROSC. So 17% increase by using the rescue pod. And so we were very happy with that process.
0: Thanks, Joe. You know, so much emphasis through the years has been on what is happening to the heart, during cardiac arrest management. This has been a good reminder that a key outcome is really how the patient fares neurologically when they survive sudden cardiac arrest. Let's hear from Dr. Holly about his thoughts on apneic oxygenation and how the rescue pod improves outcomes.
3: Well, thanks again. I'll be happy to jump in on that. I feel pretty strongly about both those subjects. Uh, I I think the apneic oxygenation piece is really quite important. We certainly use it in all of my services. Uh, The concept here is that you literally supply um, uh, oxygen um, through a nasal cannula or something similar uh, without any real uh, focus on the ventilation piece. And the, the goal here is to allow the chest compression component of CPR uh, to provide some small amount of ventilation uh, really just as a bridge to more definitive airway management and ventilation management. So the, uh, the idea is that uh, uh, high flow O2 that's in the uh, oral nasal pharynx uh, would be entrained into the, the lungs via the, the, the bellows effect that's going on from CPR. That helps to provide some oxygenation uh to the blood and again provides a nice uh stop gap until we can get our more significant and advanced airway management done so let's spend a few minutes talking about the impedance threshold device or the itd better known as the rescue pod its addition in uh, cpr is vitally important for high quality cpr and it's important to understand how the device works uh in in order to um, ensure that you're utilizing it correctly so let's do that with a really simplified model of cardiac arrest, and that is basically in cardiac arrest, the pressures inside the head, the chest, and the vasculature are all zero because we have no heartbeat generating any kind of pressures at all. When I press on the chest during the chest uh, compression phase, I raise the pressure inside the chest uh, from zero to say 40 centimeters of water. and. That pressure differential is what pushes everything out of the chest, air, blood, uh, both arterial and venous. Uh, And that pressure differential is what causes flow. That's basically how nature works. Things things, uh, that are in a liquid or gaseous state move from high pressure to low pressure. So raising the pressure inside the chest means movement of blood and air out of the chest. Some of that blood flows into the head where we want it so that we can generate neurologically intact survivals. But we also push venous blood into the head at the same time. Uh, And standard CPR relies on uh, the valvular system in our uh, uh, vascular system to sort of limit the amount of backflow and, and tend to push things only in one direction but that's not very efficient. And I think that's part of the reason that standard CPR does not generate great flows nor great pressures, uh, because we, we just have a difficult time moving enough blood for good quality perfusion. So if we think about what happens in the relaxation phase of CPR, when I come off the chest, the, chest, uh, the pressure in the chest returns to basically zero. It might go negative just a little bit, maybe minus one or two millimeters of mercury uh, in the process, but not very much. And part of the reason for that is that as soon as we uh, allow the chest to return to normal, air moves into the chest to cancel out any vacuum that's being generated. Again, the pressure outside the body now is higher than the pressure inside the body, uh, in the chest cavity anyway, and so air flows in there immediately. It's how we work on our that's our regular physiology so if we if we think about the the issue related to CPR here on the decompression phase we have a very very small if any pressure differential from the thoracic cavity to the head the brain other parts of the body and so there's no pressure differential to encourage flow out of those areas and back into the chest that results in poor draining of the brain, poor perfusion through the brain, because there's it, we're pushing it in, but we're not getting it out very well. Uh, and it it ultimately results in the inability to make room in the head for fresh oxygenated blood. If we add the ITD to the airway, whether that's via uh, uh, a well-sealed bag valve mask or a uh, ITD or supraglottic airway, um, what that does is during the decompression phase of the chest, a valve inside the ITD does not allow air to rush into the chest until a certain amount of vacuum is created inside the chest, minus 15 or so. so by not allowing air to flow in we can for a brief time during the relaxation phase of cpr generate minus 15 inside the chest and if we're still zero in the head and we're minus 15 in the chest now we have a prefer- pressure differential resulting in much better flow so the itd works by enhancing the amount of vacuum that's in the chest and that uh, significant pressure differential results in flow. So now if you think of cardiac arrest, you press on the chest, you raise the pressure inside the chest, uh, and you get a pressure differential between the chest and the head, you push blood out of the chest and into the head. And on the decompression phase with the ITD, now you go from zero to minus 15 inside the chest, it's still zero inside the head. So you have a 15 millimeter of mercury pressure differential between those two, and therefore you get blood out of the head uh, and back into the chest. That fills the heart up more than you would have otherwise, and it pulls blood out of the head, uh, which makes more room for uh, fresh oxygenated blood to make it into the head. So that's the basic physiology behind the ITD. There have been a very large number of studies looking at this physiology Uh, More than 20 that I'm aware of in animal models that have completely supported that uh, physiology. Uh, And now as we look at uh, individual studies in uh, patients in the field, we see outcome differences related to that, mostly because we're convinced we're getting much better perfusion in the brain. Our neurologically intact survival is up. And we clearly are are doing a better job of fusing the brain, which obviously is what we need to do to ensure neurologically intact survival.
0: This episode has filled in some blanks for me about what the best are doing in cardiac arrest care. I hope you're enjoying learning along with me as we've talked to Joe and Kevin and Dr. Holly. I have no doubt that you have questions by now. I've tried to ask the ones you might have, but I can't think of them all. So send your questions to acr at zoll.com. And remember, we get to see these guys live in episode five. See you soon.